Well, good morning, church. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Our text today will be Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and reading to the end of the chapter, which is also the end of the book. So we'll be listening to Habakkuk's final and concluding words. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you, there should be a Black Pew Bible, uh, Black Pew Bible near you or in front of you, and you will find today's text on page 786. Once again, that is Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. A prayer to a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from, the bow, from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, surging of, of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Please join me in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have allowed us to gather together here, for it is good to be in your house, to praise you, to worship you, 
to sing songs that honor you, and to hear your word proclaimed. As we reflect upon Habakkuk's prayer, we are reminded of your faithfulness throughout history, for you are the God of our salvation. Father, we now pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to deliver his message. We ask you to fill him with your Holy Spirit, speak through him. We pray that you would empower him to speak boldly and with clarity. We'd also ask that as we listen to the message that he has prepared for us, that our hearts and minds would be open to receive it in its fullness. And may it challenge us, change us, and mold us into the people that you would have us to be in the image of your Son. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whether you are a Christian or not, dark days are part of life. They come in all shapes and sizes, with varying types and depths of pain, suffering, and heartache. Dark days may show up just with a carry-on bag for a brief stay, or they may come with two large suitcases and a carry-on and a duffel because they're going to be around for a while. And most of the time, they come quite unexpectedly. And again, whether Christian or not, one of God's purposes in dark days, in suffering, whether that suffering is the consequences of our own action, whether that suffering is the actions of others upon us, or that suffering is something outside of direct human action under which we are suffering, His goal, He uses those kinds of things to draw us to Himself. I couldn't help but think as I thought about that of you, John. And your testimony from the baptismal waters just a few weeks ago, a broken heart and a contrite spirit brought me to faith in Jesus. The death of John's mother was the beginning of that journey in haste. The beginning, the, the beginning of that journey in haste for Pam Shingleton was the death of her father, wasn't it? Jesus is actually asked one time about the falling of a tower on people, and he uses the opportunity to call people to repent. For the Christian, the dark days, the suffering, the pain is the path of spiritual growth. That as Christians, we want to become like Christ. I mean, you just, you, you wouldn't say no to that, right? If I said, you want to become like Jesus? Did you know that Jesus is a suffering servant? You cannot actually become like Jesus unless you suffer. And your character, according to Romans 5 and James 1, will not become more like Jesus' character unless you walk through dark days, trials, suffering. It is in those dark days that by God's grace we... we we grow. I mean, we want to grow in endurance. Don't you, don't you want to just, don't you want to hold out to the end? Don't you want to persevere to the end? Don't you, don't you want to grow in Christ-like character? Don't you want to have increased hope? Don't you want to grow in your faith? 
Well, the Bible teaches that these things come through suffering. But beware, beloved. Suffering is not a magnet in the hand of God that somehow he just holds, and if you suffer, it just, it's not like on Star Wars, you know, the tractor beam just goes out and grabs a ship and just pulls it along. Suffering is not like that. Do you know how I know that suffering is not like that? Because there are non-Christians in the world. If suffering is a magnet that automatically draws people to Jesus, then there'd be no non-believers in the world because who doesn't suffer? Apparently something else must happen. And distinctly for the Christian, we must respond to dark days in faith. We must walk the, day, the path of pain by faith if we're going to experience and know God's purposes in our pain. You can check this out for homework later, but in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, Paul recalls some of the darkness of his journey. He uses words like he was afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, his body's wasting away, he's constantly facing death. And yet, the other thing, that the, the, the refrain of 2 Corinthians 4 is, he doesn't lose heart. And he keeps telling the Corinthians, don't lose heart. Because he's not crushed. He may be perplexed, but he's not driven to despair. He may be persecuted, but he's not forsaken. He may be struck down, but he is not destroyed. His outer body may be wasting away, but his inner body is being renewed day by day. And though he is constantly facing death, he, in the midst of it, he is contemplating the reality of an eternal weight of glory beyond death. How does he do that? Well, at the very end of that section, before he starts the transition, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. If all he saw was affliction and being perplexed and being persecuted and being struck down, if he just looked at his body wasting away, right? If he just contemplated how quickly death was coming upon him, he'd grow weary, but he walked by faith, not by sight. And that is what we must do, dear friends. And in Habakkuk chapter 3, that's what Habakkuk does. He lived with dark days on the very near horizon, near in prophetic terms, meaning about 40, 50 years. But it was coming, and there was no turning it away. The people of Judah, God's people, are living in rebellion. There's violence, there's contention, there's persecution of the righteous, and injustice abounds. Society as a whole has gone dark. And Habakkuk wrestles with this, and he asks the Lord what his plan is, and the surprising answer from the Lord is, things will get darker. I'm going to do the kind of work that you wouldn't believe unless I actually told you. When the Chaldeans come knocking on your door, you wouldn't actually believe that it was from me, except that I'm telling you now ahead of time. And they're going to tear down the walls. They're going to wreak havoc. They're going to burn the walls. They're going to steal all the treasures from the temple. They're going to kill scores of people, and they're going to capture the rest. But their day will come, God says in chapter 2. In time, God will punish the Babylonians. In fact, God in time will punish all evil. 
whether it's overt, in-your-face kinds of evil like the Babylonians, or it's evil hiding under the thin veneer of religious practice, which is what was happening in Judah. God, God will not overlook the evil done to us, and He will not overlook the evil done by us. All evil will be punished. That is a sobering thought, and it's such a sobering thought that at the end of chapter 2 in Habakkuk, you can hear a pin drop. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Yeah, kind of like that. But along the way, God had said, but the righteous shall live by his faith in chapter 2, verse 4. Not meaning just a one-time expression of faith, but an ongoing faith, a life of faith. Those who are justified by faith, okay, Romans 5, 1, this is not just Old Testament language, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Those who are justified by faith live by faith every day even in dark days. And that's what we learn from Habakkuk chapter 3, that in dark days, God's people must walk by faith, not by sight. In dark days, God's people must walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, our manner of life grows out of our faith, faith in the God who is sovereign over our circumstances rather than sight, what we see in our circumstances themselves. Your life, Christian, look, at, look, your life will be born out of one of those two things. Your life this week, when you wake up and you go to work and you interact with your family, you interact with your spouse, you parent your children... It will either come out of and spring out of your faith in a sovereign God who is good and who always does right, or it will be born out of the circumstances you see around you. One of those two things will be the guiding light of your life this week. And Paul would say, we, we walk by faith, not by sight only echoing what Habakkuk demonstrates. We must walk by faith, not by sight. Look at how he walks by faith. First, he sees clearly. Habakkuk sees clearly. He understands, by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 1... Habakkuk now understands he's got somewhat of his mind around what God is. He gets it. He sees the darkness of his day for what it is. He sees the increased darkness on the horizon, and he believes it. So chapter, two, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Fear is the reverence, awe is the proper response to what he has heard. In chapter 1, verse 5, God says, I am doing a work. And now Habakkuk says, I have heard of your work. I get it. And I am in awe of you and all you do. 
more evidence is at the end of the chapter in verse 17. This is not, these are not conditional if. These are not if. Think even though. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. This isn't just a possibility. This is going to happen. There's no chance it's not going to happen. And even though this is precisely what will happen, there will be no more flowing wine. There will be no fig cakes. There will be no mutton. There will be nothing in the field. We will starve. We will be hungry. We will not be celebrating. We will not have great feasts. There will be no birthday parties. It will all be wartime rationing all the time. He sees it exactly as it will be. But he doesn't just see it. He feels it. Look at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. When he thinks about what God will do, the terrors that are coming, he shakes from head to toe. Does the reality of God's judgment ever make you tremble? It's severity. It's terror. It's eternality. It's completeness. It should cause trembling. In fact, I mean, his lips are quivering, right? His knees are knocking. When he says, my body trembles, literally what that means is his stomach is turning. Habakkuk is nauseous. This is so intense. He wants to throw up. That's how overwhelming all of this is. Dear friends, suffering is not a delusion to be denied. It is a reality to face square on, and it is painful. Do not buy into the lie that nothing really hurts if you're a Christian. That somehow it isn't all that bad, you shouldn't be crying, you shouldn't feel the pain. Now, 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 come on. Don't buy into that. It is a lie. If actually, if anybody should feel the pain of the curse of sin and its effects most acutely in this world, it is Christians who understand what it is to be saved from the wrath to come. It is Christians who come to remember the sin forgiven by Jesus. If anyone is going to suffer and be pained most acutely in this world, it ought to be the believer. Certainly the Christian's life is not determined by circumstances, but dear friends, the Christian's life is also not meant to deny that certain circumstances occur. Some people will do that externally though, right? Because we get in crowds like this and we don't actually want people, we, we, we don't want, I don't want you to see that I'm actually burdened or pained by life by work, by family, by my own sin, by the sin of others against me. 
The goal is to put on the face, hear the sermon, and go home and get back to real life. If there is any place, dear friends, where the pain of life ought to be shared by one another, it is here. Not for the sake of pain, but for the sake of bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. For the sake of weeping with those who weep. For the sake of showing compassion to those who have been beat up and left for dead on the side of the road of life. That's what it means to be part of a community where we encourage one another, we serve one another, we strengthen one another, we help one another, we serve one another, we admonish one another, we rebuke one another. We, we do all of those things because we are meant to share not just, the, not just the Facebook part of our life, you know, the part that we really want to put forward for everybody to see. but that we are genuinely ourselves. This happens best in smaller groups, doesn't it? One-to-one, friendships, small circles. It's most complete that way. If you sit here and you think, well, nobody's been my friend here. Well, let me encourage you. The, the Bible never, 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 never tells us to sit around and wait for somebody to come to us. Just reach out. Be, be a friend. We're not to be concerned as much with how others treat me so much as how I am treating others. Whether I am seeking to bear the burden of others. He sees clearly. This is painful and he feels it and he trembles and he's nauseous. is not a man who lives above his circumstances. This is a man who's going to walk by faith in the midst of his circumstances. Secondly, he prays humbly. Notice where the weight of all that he's heard has driven him. First verse, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. It drives him to his knees. And in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So we've already seen that, that Habakkuk is in awe of what God is doing. And then he makes these three requests. Three requests that have this repeated modifier, in the midst of the years. That literally means in the middle. The time in the middle. I think the best way to understand that is to understand it as being in between the time when the Babylonians will conquer Jerusalem and the time when Babylon will be defeated. In those years, in those 70 years, in the midst of that, he says, revive it. Make your work live. Bring it to life. It is the plea, it is the plea of the sufferer for final justice. Habakkuk started out in chapter 1 by questioning God's absence. Then he questions God's answer. And now he bows his head and says, Yes, Lord, not my will, 
but yours be done. This isn't just a resignation to grin and bear it, though. It is faith that says, Lord, you know what is best. You do what is best. Do what you must to accomplish your purposes. In the midst of it, between the time that the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem, come against Jerusalem, and the time when God will bring judgment on the Babylonians, in that time, Lord, do your work. Do it. Part of which is refining and bringing a remnant out of the people of God. And then he says, reveal it. May In the midst of the years, make it known. What Habakkuk has seen, make that known to other people. Help us get our minds around what you're doing. Help us really embrace the fact that you are both great and good. This work, have you not been blown away by what God is doing in response here? It is beyond human comprehension. And so Habakkuk knows he needs God's help in order to understand it. He needs God's help to see his perspective. He needs God's help to believe it. So is it any wonder then, after, in the book of James, chapter 1, once James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds and talks about all of the things that trials bring and it ultimately says that you will lack nothing. Do you know what the very next sentence is? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Because do you know one of the times that you need the wisdom of God the most and one of the times that I need the wisdom of God the most? It's right smack dab in the middle of that trial. Because that is where thinking goes haywire. That is where we get completely off track. That is where... Instead of conducting our manner of life based on the God who is sovereign and good, we begin to conduct our life in thinking and conversation as if all that exists are the circumstances around us. And that's why Habakkuk is praying, make it known. Give wisdom liberally, God. This is humility, to recognize that he has to be dependent on the Lord. His wisdom, God's wisdom is perfect. And if I am to know and understand, if I am to really understand God's purposes in suffering, he must help me. I once sat with a couple to help. I was just sitting there to be there as one of them confessed their sin. Sin that in the world's minds would be unforgivable. Sin that in the world's mind is so heinous, not even somebody that doesn't claim to be a Christian would do that. And the one spouse confesses. The other spouse immediately, immediately, as soon as, I mean, the, air, the, the words are still hanging in the speech bubble, right? And the other Spouse says, I forgive you. And then that spouse, the spouse who has been sinned against, the spouse who is now forgiven, that spouse literally said these words. 
God has ordained this for his glory and for my good as that spouse is weeping. You cannot say that without the wisdom of God. You will not see your trial the way through the eyes of faith without the wisdom of God. Revive, reveal, and then remember. In the midst of all the wrath, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. As we tremble before you, God, as we are nauseous in the presence of your great, powerful wrath, remember mercy. After the blessings of the covenant, the blessings and the curses of the covenant are laid out in Deuteronomy these words come at the beginning of chapter 30. They, they aren't on the screen. It's Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 3, if you want to note it down. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, guarantee in Deuteronomy 30 that they will be driven out of the land, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy upon you. Habakkuk knows his Bible. And he says, in wrath, remember mercy. He is not concerned. This call to remember in prayer is not a concern that God will somehow forget. It is making an argument with God based on His character and what He has promised and what He has said. And, and what a humble prayer it is, isn't it? Because do these people who have lived in such darkness, do they deserve mercy? Mercy, by definition, is not something we deserve or have a right to. Mercy is a gift of love from God which keeps us from the punishment we rightly deserve. And so he's saying that as, as you chastise us, as we suffer, show, show your mercy so that we don't suffer like we deserve to suffer. Be merciful as you are merciful. You said you will show mercy to whom you will show mercy. And then in Deuteronomy 30, God, you said you will show mercy to us. Revive, reveal, remember. All with Habakkuk's head bowed in humble prayer. I ask you a question. What's the most surprising thing that's missing from that? Remove. Can you just remove these circumstances? That would certainly be the best thing. I know you've promised. I know you've said it. I know the Chaldeans are already on the upsurge, Lord, but can't you just remove that? We promise we'll do better next time. It's not a bad thing to ask the Lord to deliver us from hard. It's not a bad thing, but 
I just want you to see it's, it's conspicuously absent here. I mean, just last night, Susan and I got word that a friend of mine who I served with, he was a pastor and I was, uh, did youth and music at this church and we were both in seminary. And he's not, I mean, he's older than I am, but he's not that much older than I am. And uh, he has CHF now, congestive heart failure caused by some kind of infection and they're not sure what's going to happen. And we prayed, we prayed for God to be glorified. We prayed that they would have wisdom. We prayed, but we also prayed God heal him. Paul prays three times that the thorn in his flesh will be removed. But it's just interesting that here, in the midst of this darkness, that he feels in his guts. He is praying for God to do his work, for God to give wisdom, and for God to be merciful as they suffer. Be merciful. That is walking by faith. He sees clearly. He prays humbly. Third, he remembers accurately. Now, this is from verses uh, 3 to 15. And we're going to accelerate just a bit because this is... But Habakkuk, essentially, from verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk remembers who the Lord is. He remembers God's character and God's work because, and God's faithfulness. And Habakkuk's faith is built on who God is, not on what his circumstances are. So, let me just list some things that he remembers. God is holy. Verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. This area, it's very unusual because in other prophets, I mean, you know, like Isaiah wants God to rend the heavens and come down, right? Come from heaven. What's odd is that this is, this is the area of the Sinai wilderness where the law was received. And he's called the Holy One. And his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. It's mindful of Isaiah 6, isn't it? The train of his robe fills the temple with glory. Except here, it's the earth, the heavens, all full of his brightness. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. 1 Timothy 6, 16, God dwells in unapproachable light. He is holy, holy, holy. Even though in some cases, verse 4 says it's veiled. As in, Moses had to wear a veil when he came down because the brightness of the reflected glory of God on his face was too much. Jesus, in Jesus even the glory is veiled until the Mount of Transfiguration when it is bust wide open for Peter, James, and John. He is holy. What do you do in a bright light? What do you do when just you go, you know, you're in a dark place, you go in, you go in for out from the movie theater into the sunshine. This right here, right? You don't just squint, you move back. It's an instinctive and you cover because you look, this is beyond. This is beyond the light of the sun. Because in the end the sun won't even be needed. The Lord Himself and Christ will be the light. 
coming into the presence of a holy God. He remembers how other God is, how transcendent God is, how unstained God is, how righteous God is, how unique God is. He is superior. And he remembers that God is awesome in power. Verses 5 and 6, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Plague followed at his heels is kind of a, a word picture of uh, sparks flying up as he touches down on the earth, as he makes his path. The sparks of his flame just go. He stood and measured the earth, which actually literally is he stood and shook the earth. I mean, it's his, but he stood and shook it, and he looked and shook the nations. Shook the nations is actually this immediate terrifying. You've seen like those moments in movies where the music, you know something's coming, right? Something is going to be behind that door. Something is going to come out from that shadow. And all of a sudden, boom, and the whole movie theater, whoa, right? That's what happened. When God shows up, the nations are struck with fear. The arrogance... The arrogance to think that nothing shakes a leader of any particular nation. When God shows up, He blows, and they're gone. The eternal mountains are scattered. Scattered is like, uh, um, it's like hitting it with a giant sledgehammer. You know, it's, it, it's that. And it just... The most massive, unmovable things that we can imagine, the mountains, crumble before God. That is His power. God is victorious. So we see the enemies here, Cushion and Midian, both. Uh, Cushion was the first one to raise up in the time of Judges to be the oppressor of the Israelites. Midian was just a constant thorn in the side for God's people. But both the enemy, bo- both of these enemies of God's people are in affliction and tremble. And God's victory, just, just listen. It, it, I just have to read it again. Beginning in verse 8, just listen. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. To the point that verse 15 says, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in in secret. It is utter devastation for the enemies of God when he shows up. 
and God is Savior. He shows up in a chariot of salvation, the end of verse 8. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Which essentially means your anointed's salvation. Or, Or it could be translated for salvation with your anointed. Where is he getting all this? You ever thought about that? Where is he getting all these ideas about God? Where is he getting his understanding of who God is? Where is he getting the record of what God's done? Where is he seeing the faithfulness of God displayed? It's it's in the Bible. And what we have here is a kind of collage. You know those photo mosaics where it's one picture, but it's a picture made up of a thousand other pictures? What we have here is a picture of the awesome, victorious, saving, holy God in a thousand little pictures that are just pieces, just little pieces here and there. So let me just, I'm just going to run through them. You just take, just, you can write them down if you want, you don't, but just, just listen to these events. You can find little pieces of language that point you to the flood, that point you to the exodus, that point you to the giving of the law, that point you to the wilderness wandering, that point you to the coming into the promised lands, the the depths raise up their hands. you imagine the Red Sea, the Jordan, deliverance through the judges, Deliverance under kings. That one about shooting with his own arrows, uh, that is most likely about the, the battle between Jehoshaphat and this vast horde of armies in Second Chronicles chapter 20 where, where Jehoshaphat stands before the Lord and says, we are absolutely clueless, but our eyes are on you. And he says, go out and watch the salvation of the Lord. And the Lord sets an ambush for him, and all these armies just turn on one another and take one another out. And the, 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 the people of Judah just waltz in and get their plunder. And he's getting all of that from what he learned in Sunday school. He's getting all of that from the Scriptures. How is it, dear friends, that you and I will keep a grip on God during our dark days? It is by knowing our Bibles. Prepare for your dark days now, if you're not in them, by diving deep into the Bible. And then walk through the dark days by clinging to the Bible. You see, every day that we don't read, don't meditate, don't study, don't go to God's Word is a day that we have missed the opportunity to know and love God more and to be prepared for dark days. And if we miss out on that during the dark days, we will be more likely to believe the lies that our circumstances tell us, to walk in disobedience, to actually make the experience of our dark days even darker. When you don't have the light unto my feet that is the Bible, your dark days get even darker. In fact, I would just tell you, if you're helping a friend, one sure sign of not walking by faith in dark days is the neglect of God's Word. 
not reading it, not studying it, staying away from the church where it will be preached. These are sure indicators that we are not walking by faith. He remembers accurately. Finally, he trusts wholeheartedly. (laughs) In the midst of his nausea, in verse 16... Habakkuk says, Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He's not talking about a cushy retreat center. He's talking about actually being in the midst of the suffering, waiting for the Lord to bring final hope. This waiting quietly is like you and me at the end of our long days when we are weary, we are worn out, we are tired, and we sit down and you instinctively go, (sighs) that sigh is what that phrase means. Why? Because in the Lord He has found the only place where you can sigh like that. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the mountains give way, though the earth be moved into the heart of the sea. Waiting quietly, resting in the Lord, is not putting aside faithful work. It's putting aside faithless worry. I will wait quietly. And then he says in verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy. That first rejoice is a victory celebration. It is saying, I will rejoice knowing that God's final victory will certainly come. This is the only way that Paul can say rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know what he says right after? The day of the Lord is at hand. Why does he say that? Because that's the only way we can rejoice in the Lord always. If our rejoicing in the Lord is conditional upon Him giving me certain circumstances that I want, I will never rejoice in the Lord always. But if my rejoicing in the Lord always is based on His promise that in the end all will be complete, the work He has promised to finish, He will finish in me and in the world, then I rejoice. Isn't that right? I will rejoice. That's why we come to this table. Because we know the victory now, but we will really know it on that day. We will know it in full. Here we see in part. There we will see him face to face. And then he finishes by saying, God is my strength. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Which is a picture of ascension in victory. It is a victory ascension. The only way he's going to share in that victory is by the strength of God. He trusts in the Lord. He will wait quietly for that final day. He will rejoice knowing that last day is one of victory. 
and he will walk toward that day knowing that God gives him the strength to do so. That is wholehearted trust. Another sure sign that you are not walking by faith in the midst of dark days is when you are willing to disobey the Lord in order to gain what you think is relief in your circumstance. That is not faith. Habakkuk sees his circumstances clearly and they shake him to the core. He prays humbly. He remembers God's character. And the intimacy grows. You just want a little study. From, verse, from verses 3 to 7, God is in the third person. In verses 8 to 15, Habakkuk is now in dialogue with God. You, 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 second person. And then at the end, the most intimate, I will wait for you. But it's even better than that. The word God in verse 3 is Eloah, which is a very generic word, a generic name for God. But then in verse 8, you know what it changes to? Yahweh, Yahweh. But it gets even better because in verse 19, notice how God is all all three capitals there. It is Yahweh Adonai. It is my sovereign Yahweh. He goes from God to covenant God to my covenant God who is Lord. That is where the intimacy goes to. He trusts Him wholeheartedly. And it finishes. You ever seen a weirder finish to a book of prophecy? To the choir master with stringed instruments? What is this movie music background? What is that supposed to be about? Well, then... At the beginning, he says a prayer of Habakkuk, according to Shagianoth, which is a musical term, used at the beginning of Psalm 7. And then a couple of times along the way, you see this pause, this sigh pause of Selah, only found in the Psalms. Dear friends, what we have in this chapter is not just prophecy. It is not just prayer. It's a song to be sung by God's people. It is not unlike the songs of the African slaves that they would sing in hope of final deliverance. You see, as we gather week by week, we come into this room with varying levels of dark days. As we sing the songs of the kingdom, singing God's character, singing hope, singing God's triumph in Christ. And while we may hum this song during dark days, this is meant for community. Habakkuk 3 is not just my private worship song in the car. Habakkuk is the worship of God's people together. You know how I know that? Because there is a choir master present. And there are stringed instruments present. This is for the community of God's people to sing together. As we started today by thinking about Ephesians 5 in order to encourage one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Imagine they are in the shackles of Babylon and they are singing Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, 
and there's no fruit on the vine. And the olive does nothing, and the herds are gone, and the stalls are empty, and our children are starving, and our leaders were killed, and our land was taken. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That's what it's meant to be. And you can consider the outline of this text as an outline of a way to help others who are in their dark days. Help them to see clearly. Don't explain away pain. Don't pretend it's not bad. Don't try to compare them to other people or say it could be worse. Help them to pray humbly and submit to God's will. Help them to remember accurately who God is. The one person we need to see in the dark days is God. And help them to trust wholeheartedly. Encourage them to rest in Him, knowing that He hasn't forsaken them. That His victory over evil in the end will be ours. And quite frankly, our victory, dear friends, beloved ones, is certain because our choir master, capital C, who sung this song and who knew it the best, who probably sung it in the synagogue, who lived its truth, faced the darkest of days. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day. Christ on the road to Calvary. Jesus is the greater Habakkuk. You see, Habakkuk's going to go through the darkness of God's judgment with God's people, but Jesus is going to go through the darkness of God's judgment for God's people in our place. He saw the cross clearly. That's how he taught his disciples, and he felt it. His soul was utterly burdened so that in Luke 22, he is sweating drops of blood. He prayed humbly, not my will, but yours be done. He remembered accurately the plan that he was to come and to give his life as a ransom for many, to bring eternal life through his life, death, and resurrection. And he trusted wholeheartedly. Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, and he did it with joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, and he has won the victory over death and hell and sin and the devil. And the darkest days here cannot compare to the glory that awaits those who trust him. We share that victory. We know it during the dark days and we, en- we will enjoy it forever. You see, the Bible gives no guarantee of an end to dark days in this life. But in the gospel, for all who will turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will rest in His finished work, His merit credited to them by faith alone, following Him, finding the narrow path that leads to life, 
The narrow path that we walk by faith and not by sight. The narrow path where the light of Christ shines in the darkest days. The narrow path where we have joy because God works all things for His glory and our good. The narrow path where we have hope that one day, one day, the sun will set on the darkest days forever. Forever. And so, I will wait quietly. I will rejoice. God is my strength. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and just, we're going to take a moment to reflect on this together and then I'm going to pray. After I pray, there will be men who will take our monthly benevolence offering. If you want to contribute to that, I encourage you to do so. But reflect on what God has said. Our Father, we cannot do this. We cannot walk by faith and not by sight apart from your empowering grace moment by moment. Help us, Lord. I pray for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ that you would open their eyes so that they would see that the darkness they experience, the suffering they face, the pain they encounter is meant to turn them to one who will give hope for all eternity, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Father, would you make us, Gray Road Baptist Church, a congregation full of people who walk by faith and not by sight in every kind of day that comes along. Would you give us the grace to see our circumstances clearly, to pray in humility, to remember who you are and what you've done and your faithfulness and your goodness to us in Christ accurately, and to trust you wholeheartedly. Help us to wait quietly. Help us to rejoice. Help us to remember that you our sovereign Yahweh are our strength. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.